just, I don't know when it was, a couple months ago, my kids were like, hey, Dad, would you go take us to the movie theater? They wanted to go see uh, the movie, the, the new Spider-Man, Spider-Man Far From Home. Now, I don't know if you're like, you're into like the superhero type thing, uh, but I go to this movie and I'm like, what? What's happening here? Spider-Man is, is a part of the Avengers? Like, like maybe I, ro- I just ruined the movie for you. I apologize. But I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, when did Spider-Man become, like, is Tony Stark his dad now? Like, how does, I I didn't know what had happened. Apparently, these movies, they build on one another, where you got to watch one, and the next one builds on that. And so, in fact, when we went to go watch Avengers Endgame, maybe you've heard of that movie, I had to go and watch a YouTube video that summarized all the other 20 movies before I could watch this endgame thing to understand how they all play together. And, and, and maybe I just ruined the whole series for you guys. I apologize about that. But I'm watching this movie and I'm like, I- I'm missing something here. I don't understand. I don't, because they all build on each other. And so for you to watch that movie, Spider-Man, uh, the context for you to understand, you the key to understanding is you've got to know the context. You've got to know the background, the other movies that play into it. And so with that, excited to continue our series uh, that we've been going through on the Holy Spirit. And specifically, the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with spiritual gifts. Uh, last week, Corey did a fantastic job, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, deal, describing uh, the church as a body. And he really drove home this idea, this idea that we all need to hear, is that the mission of God is an every member mission. That every one of us, if we are a believer in Christ, we have a vital and a necessary part to play in the mission that God wants to accomplish right here in Yakima, in our world, in our city, in our church. In fact, the question, the question that I would desperately want you to answer is, who has God created you to be? And secondly, what has God created you to do? That's the question I want every one of us in this room to to come to the point that we can answer that question. Who has God created you to be and what has God created you to do? Because if we view church as something that we come and we just receive, we come for an hour and a half, we hear some good music, we hear a really corny joke, there's a pastor who gets up and talks to me for a little bit. If that's all we view church as, that we are actually robbing ourselves and robbing the body of Christ of true flourishing because the church thrives when we understand it is an every-member mission. Uh, Next week, I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to do a a survey of spiritual gifts. So as we're talking about these gifts, the gifts of uh, of help and and giving and and tongues and leadership and all these things, we're going to have an opportunity next week to take a survey over all of those gifts and get a biblical understanding of what they are, what they look like in the church, how they play out. One of those I don't think you want to miss. We're going to also next week give you some opportunities for you to begin to discern for yourself. Man, how has God gifted me? How do I figure out the way that God has made me to be and what God has made me to do? We're going to give you some opportunities to wrestle with that and figure that out for yourself so we can all answer that question, who has God created me to be and what has God created me to do? But today, today we're going to look at one of the most quoted chapters throughout the entire Bible. In fact, you'll see this, uh, you'll see this chapter read at weddings. You'll see it on coffee mugs. You'll even see it on people's tattoos uh, of verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me just say 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a powerful chapter in the Bible in itself. But 
this chapter was never intended to be taken out of context. And the context for 1 Corinthians 13 is that comes right in between chapter 12 and chapter 14, right? That's the context. And so again, as we're talking about 1 Corinthians 12, we're talking about the importance of the spiritual gifts. On how uh, it is crucial for every one of us to recognize how God has wired us and how, what, what role we play in the mission of the church. Chapter 14 Chapter 14 is going to say, this is how the spiritual gifts, this is what they look like played out in the church. And so we look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, it was not just, just given to us so we can read at weddings. In fact, chapter 13 is the most crucial uh, uh, under, thing for us to understand when we're having this conversation about spiritual gifts. Because if we don't understand 1 Corinthians 13, then we can't do what 1 Corinthians 12 says to do faithfully. And chapter 14 will make completely, will miss a point entirely if we don't understand 1 Corinthians 13. So we're started uh, chapter 12, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. I want you to read this along with me. It says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Paul's saying it is good and it is right for us to have these conversations about spiritual gifts. It's good for us to try and discern, okay, God, how, who have you made me to be? How have, what have you made me to do? It's good for us to have these conversations. But then Paul says this, and I will show you a more excellent way. Again, this is where we have to understand the context. The context in the Corinthian church. Remember the Corinthian church, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, and how the gifts became divisive in their church. There became this jealousy, there became this rivalry, uh, where, where my gift's better than yours, and so I'm more spiritual than you. And others were, well, I've got a gift, but because I don't feel very important, or it's not uh, uh, one of those gifts that you see up on the stage, I'm not going to use my gifts. And so in the context of that, Paul says, hey, listen, listen, I want to show you a more excellent way. And he goes right into chapter 13. And chapter 13 is going to say that the most excellent way, the more excellent way that Paul's talking about is the way of love. That is important as the spiritual gifts are to, to, the, to our faith and to the church. Let, listen, don't miss this. The, the spiritual gifts are important for us. But the gifts are not the point. The point is always love. In fact, I, I would give you a picture of it like this. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we hear that all the people are given a spiritual gift. And so you have these people and these gifts, and we become like instruments, Right? We've got some guitars, we've got some keyboards, we've got some vocalists, we've got the, we've got the drums, we'll even do the cowbell for Adam, because I know he loves that thing. And so, we've got all these different instruments, and all these different sounds, and they all have these different purposes. And if they all do their own thing, you know what that creates? Chaos. That creates chaos. That's like giving toddlers an instrument and they're banging on it and just having fun. Like, it's, that's not beautiful. That's not, that's not. But here's what happens. You bring a composer up. You bring a conductor. And they begin to pull all of these different instruments together. And they're saying, hey, hey, you do this and, and you sing that. And then the, the composer puts it down onto paper. And then we find this, this beauty of music. Where the purpose is not just these individual, individual instruments doing their own thing. The purpose is to draw them together to make something beautiful. Listen, if we are the instruments, love is the conductor. 
Love is the composer that brings us all together, that pulls us together and puts us down and makes us into something beautiful. So we're going to have this conversation about love today. As we get in there, I want to give just a couple of foundational ideas about love before we jump in. <coughs> Number one, everyone else in this room needs to recognize that we are always motivated by love. Without exception. Every one of us, what we do is driven by what we love. Right? This is why Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else in the New Testament. Because money oftentimes is going to be the surest way to see what it is that you love. And I would include this. I would say how you spend your time is also a good indicator for what you love. You begin looking at those two things. How you spend your money, how do you spend your time. Man, it's really indicative of, of, of what you value, of what you love. And so when we start having this conversation about faith, the issue for us in terms of our faith, it's not that we would start being motivated to live our lives according to what we love, because we already do that. The issue for us in our faith is that we would begin to actually love according to what and according to how God loves. That our love, the, the, the desire of our, the, the affection of our heart would begin to change from being about me to being about the things of God and what God would love and what God, uh, and how God would love. <coughs> The second foundational idea about love is first and foremost, we've got to understand that love is about self-denial. That true love is a selfless love. I mean, oftentimes you talk to people and they say, well, the opposite of love is hate. And that's not true. The opposite of love is pride. Pride that says, I get what I want. I'm going to pursue what I want. In fact, Jesus becomes the perfect, model, perfect example of what selfless love looks like. He, he's the example. He models it for us. First, Philippians chapter 2, probably my, my favorite passage in the entire Bible. Philippians 2 says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but considers others, uh, consider others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which he is your example, <coughs> who is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And when we want to talk about what love looks like, selfless love, Jesus is the perfect example for that. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave selflessly his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So today we're going to look at the way of love. We're going to look at uh, the chapter is really broken out into three clear uh, points. And so we're going to look at... Uh, the way uh, of love and how it affects the, our lives and our church and how we operate in the gifts that God has given us. Point number one is that uh, the way of love is a love that flows through you. He, he says this in, in chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, he says, I'm nothing more than a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And he says, if I have all prophetic powers, and I have the ability to understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to move mountains, 
That's a lot of faith. But he says, if I have not love, I am nothing. He said, if I give all that I have, and even if I deliver my body to be burned, and I make the ultimate sacrifice, and I do not have love, I gain nothing. When I read that couple of verses, that's got to be, for me, one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible. When you think about what he just said, that I, I can use the gift that God has given me for his glory and for the mission of the church, but I can still sound like a, like a toddler banging on the piano. Like I can do all these things, right? In essence, I can do all that God has gifted me to do. I can reach uh, Christian maturity, the pinnacle of maturity. I can, I can even go so far as to offer the greatest sacrifice that I would give my life for, for the cause, but if it's not rooted in love, then he just said it's nothing. It's useless. Because it's not just what we do that matters. It's our motive that matters. So the question I, I come to, well, well, how can that be? Like, how can we like, like, do all this for Christ and do all these good things that he says to do? But if it's not rooted in love, we're, it's useless. How can that be? And this is the point of the entire chapter. That we are useless, we become a detestable sound when what, we, when what drives us is not a selfless love for other people. That we can do all these things, if it's not rooted in love, then it is completely useless. Let me just remind you, we're talking about love. Remember, love is not about you. Love is not about you. And somewhere along the way, we've got this tragic idea of what love is all about, Right? And it actually, it's actually kind of a Christian idea, right? Psalm 23, verse 5, uh, the psalmist writes and says, You prepare the table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And then he says, My cup runneth over. And somewhere along the line, we came up with this idea that, that love is kind of like this cup, right? And so this is us. We're this little cup right here. And what we do is, is God begins to say, here's my love, and he begins to pour out his love on us. And so he saves us, and, and maybe he blesses our marriage, gives us a marriage. Maybe he gives us some kids. Maybe he gives us a good job. He helps us pay our bills. And at some point, that cups get filled. And then we start flowing over. And now that I'm filled, now other people can experience God's love because I'm filled up. And isn't that how we kind of view love? Is this idea that, that I'm the cup. And when I get filled up, when I, when I experience this, then, then once I'm filled up, then I can start giving to other people, right? Isn't that how we view uh, the way that, that love works? Listen, if that's how we view our lives, then we've completely missed the point. Because if, 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 if we're the cup, then what has to happen for us to love other people? If we're the cup, we have to be filled up before we can then extend love to others. And so in essence, we've made love about me. Where God, I want to extend this love, but first, God, you've got to fill me up. You've got to give me all these things. You've got to make me fill, you've got to fill my cup, and then I can give to other people. Where we became ourselves, we've become the, the primary purpose for God's love. That I'll all get mine, all get filled up, and then when I get mine, then other people can experience some too. 
It's a me first mentality. Does that sound like selfless love? Does that sound like the example that Christ set for us? And what Paul is trying to to tell us is that the primary way that we live out God's love is not that we would be a a reservoir to, to collect. Not that we would be a reservoir to say, God, you fill me up first. And listen, man, I do pray for you. I pray that God fills your cup. Like, like, I want you to experience these things. I want you to have a good marriage. I want you to have fulfilling uh, family life and a fulfilling job. And, and I want you to have your bills. Like, I want those things for you. I, I pray that God would fill your cup. But we're not created to be cups just to be filled. We're not created to be a reservoir to fill ourselves. The primary way that we live out God's love is that we be a, a conduit. A conduit that, that, that shares God's love with, with others. In fact, when you read the Bible, the Bible never talks about us being a a reservoir. It talks about being a river of life where we're the conduit. And so here's the river of life flowing through us. The Bible talks about uh, about how the the, the love of God flows right through us to other people. And you see the difference between, look, I'm a cup. I'm going to fill myself up and then I can give to others versus I think the way that God wants us to view it, that we're a conduit. That God's love flows right through us. And listen, I, I pray, I pray you get filled up. But I don't think the purpose is for us to be filled up. I think the purpose is for us to be a conduit that ex- shares the love of God with the people around us. Wasn't that cool? That, man, it worked better than I, I tried it on Thursday. This worked a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Man, love is not about you being a private reservoir uh, created by God to fill you up. Rather, true love is that a river of life flows through you from God. The love is not about you, it's about others. And we become selfless in allowing the love of God to flow through us to the people around us. Let me, let me give you a picture to help flesh this out. I read this book uh, this fall uh, by Nabil Qureshi called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, what a great book. If you have not read this, I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, this is a story of a young Muslim man who, who grew up in a Muslim home, very, very Muslim in his faith. And a story about how he found a, how he had a Christian friend. And they began just talking about faith. And, and this guy, Nabil, he begins to explore faith, uh, the faith that he believed. And he begins to explore, explore who Jesus was. And really the story is about uh, him coming to faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful story. I, I, man, I, I would highly recommend it. But one of the biggest hurdles that he talks about, one of the biggest hurdles for him to to come to faith in Jesus and to finally become a Christian was if he became a Christian, that meant that he would at best be exiled from his family. At worst, man, he could suffer physical harm for making the decision to leave the Muslim faith and become a Christian. And, he, and you hear this battle as he's writing this. He says, he says, listen, if I love Jesus, that means I have to die to my family. I mean, let me just say, how many of us have faced that kind of pressure in our faith? Like, that's where he was. And he writes this towards the end of the book, and he's very honest. as he, He's wrestling with, with this pain and agony that he's watching in his family. And he's wrestling with this, and, and it almost becomes unbearable for him. He's looking at all this heartache and this pain that his family's gone through because he found the truth. And he writes, and he said, I was praying. I was praying, and I said, God, God, I wish you would have killed me when you saved me. 
I wish, God, that you would have spared me the pain and the agony of me having to watch my family go through this. And as he's wrestling with this, he's praying and he's reading the Bible. And he said, God suddenly opened up my eyes. He said, God opened up my eyes. And here I am, I'm, I'm wallowing in self-pity. I'm wallowing in the fact that my cup isn't filled, God. My, my cup's not filled. He said, God opened my eyes to the world around me. Where there are billions of people who don't know who God is. There are billions of people who don't know the love of God, the hope of God, the peace that passes all understanding. He says, as I'm wallowing in my self-pity, God opened my eyes to the fact that there are billions of people bound for eternity in hell. And he's reading it and saying, he sees where Jesus says, as I have loved, so you to love other people. Man, here, here's how God loved. Here's how Jesus loved. Jesus' cup wasn't filled. He was rejected by everybody. He was rejected by his best friends. Paul turned his back, Peter turned his back on him. And now Beale writes and says, how can I call myself a follower of Jesus? Yet I'm unwilling to love as he loved. Yet how can I be unwilling to live as he lived? In essence, Nabil had to recognize, listen, God's love is not about me. God's love is not about me. And he could, he could sit there and, and complain and say, God, God, uh, how could you make me bear this? Until he realized, man, God's love is not about me. God's love is not about you. God's love is not about any one of us. That, that true love, it's not that we'd be a reservoir for God just to fill us with all these good things. And he does that. He does that. But that's not the point. The point is that we would be a conduit. That love would flow through us to the world around us. To our family, to our neighbor, to our workplace, to, to the people around us. That we would be a conduit to share the love to the people around us. Now the question becomes, well, what does that look like? I mean, if we're to be a conduit of God's love, and God's love flows from him to, through us, to the people around us, what does that look like? Number two, love is defined by God and not defined by us. We need to understand, love is defined by God and not by us. Because in reality, most of us, we have a skewed view of what love really is. We have a, we have a skewed view, we have an incorrect view, Right? Either because we love out of our selfish nature, and we know that's not true love, or we have negative experiences that have skewed the way we're supposed to view love. And so somebody is supposed to be the example of God's love towards us, and they haven't been faithful in that, and so that's caused us to have a skewed view of what love really is, right? Understand that? Like maybe you've had a mother or a father who's been abusive, neglectful, and that's resulted in a, a, a misconstrued idea of what love is. Some of us in this room have dealt with sexual abuse, abandonment, some other things. And that experience of hurt and shame is the experience of hurt and shame in love's clothing. Like this is what I'm supposed to be, but then I abuse. And so it gives us this skewed view of what love really is. And so in our brokenness, we have this, 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 this altered view of love. 
And so we come up with our own definition. Man, this is what love is. Let me tell you what love is. I'm telling you how I love you. Right? At best, how we view love is lacking. And at worst, how we view love is detestable, maybe even being border on hatred to the people we're claiming to love. Again, this is where we look and say, you want to know what love looks like? Christ is our example of what love looks like. He's the example of what selfless love is. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, While we were weak, while we were still sinners, Christ in selfless love, he died for the ungodly. Now, when we were unworthy, when we were undeserving, when Jesus' cup wasn't filled, that he loved anyways and gave himself for us, that's the picture of selfless love. Not that he had to receive something from us, but in his love he gave himself for us when we reject him. And so Christ becomes our example. And so Paul is going to write in the next couple of verses uh, and give us, try and recapture and redeem the definition of love as we know it. And so here's, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of an exercise this morning. I want you to begin to think about the people in your life that you claim to love. Not that you claim, people in the life that you do love, uh, you, you do love. Think about in relation to your parents, your spouse. Think about your church leaders, your church family. Think about those people on the opposite side of the political divide. Think about your extended family, your neighbors, your enemy, your enemies. Listen, as, as we read these next couple of verses, I don't want you to read these verses and say, love is so and so. I want you to put your name in there. Or instead of love is patient and kind, put your name in there and say, Kevin is patient and kind. And I want you to kind of grade yourself. Is that true? With the people that you claim to love, the people that God's called us to love, would they say you are patient and kind? And as we read through this, don't put your name into this story. Put your name into these verses and kind of evaluate yourself. Is this how my love is defined? Let's read through this together. Verse 4. Kevin is patient and kind. Kevin does not envy or boast. Just Kevin doesn't desire what he doesn't have. Kevin is not arrogant and rude. Kevin does not insist on getting his own way. Kevin is not irritable or resentful, which means Kevin does not keep a record of all the times that he's been wronged. Kevin does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, which means Kevin is not vengeful. Kevin bears all things. Kevin believes all things. Kevin hopes all things. Kevin endures all things. I can't speak for you, but I know every time I read my name into that, I'm reminded of how much I fall short. And we could just stop the service right now and just, let's go into confession. And let me repent and apologize to my family and to my wife, to our church. Because I know as I read through that, that definition of love, that description of what love looks like, 
man, I fall way short. I would imagine every one of us in this room, we're guilty on some level of not loving the way that God has told us to love. And here's, here, here's, here's the challenge. Paul's writing and saying, listen, we need to, to, to recapture and redeem how we view love. Where you set your definition aside and you say, here's how God describes it. I'm going to allow God's description to be how I love the people around us. That I'm going to love them. I'm going to be patient and kind even when they don't deserve it. That I'm not going to envy or boast or be upset because you're not giving me what I want. That I'm not going to be arrogant and rude because you don't do the things I want to do. That I'm not going to insist that it's my way or the highway. That I'm not going to be resentful I'm not going to keep record of all the times that you do me wrong, which means I'm not going to say, you always, you never. I'm going to bear all things. I'm going to believe all things. I'm going to believe the most, believe the best in you. Hope all things, endure all things. Listen, if you're like me, and you're reading that, I'm like, man, I got to grow in this. I got to grow in this. Let me tell you, the secret, the secret to, to accomplishing that is not to try harder. It's not to try harder. The secret for you to love the way that God has called us to love is that you would experience the love that God has shown you through Jesus Christ. That as you begin to experience that love and process and meditate on how Jesus has loved you, even though Jesus knew your deepest and darkest secrets, even though we t continually turn our back on him, he still chose to set his love upon us, to set his affection upon us, to, to forgive us and to redeem us. And we, when we experience that love, man, it changes our hearts and enables us to love others the way that we have been loved. John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you would love one another. And how do we do that? As I have loved you, you are also to love one another. The key to this is as we experience the love of God, we are redeemed and transformed to be able to love other people in the same way. Number three this morning. Love lasts forever. It says in verse eight, it says love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Uh, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man and reached maturity, I gave up childish ways. For we know, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then that day we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And what Paul's trying to say to us is when we're talking about these spiritual gifts, he's saying love is not a spiritual gift. Love is an entire way of life. A spiritual gift, like we can, we can choose to use our gift or not. And Paul's saying, listen, love isn't something you choose to do. Love is a way of life. It is how we are to live. And what he's saying is the gifts, the gifts, man, they're important. The gifts are valuable. 
But love is supreme. As important as the gifts are, love is the ultimate object. He says gifts are temporary, but love is eternal. And that he said there's, come, there's going to come a day when the gifts are going to come to an end. And this is where we can get at a theological debate. But let me tell you, here's what I see in this text. That Paul says there's coming a day when the gifts are going to end. And he says when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, when Jesus ushers, in, ushers us into the presence of God forever, when we see him face to face, when faith, as we know it, gives way to vision and hope is swallowed up in realization, when that happens, gifts will no longer be needed because now we'll have full maturity. But Paul said love still remains. Love is eternal. Love is a thing that should last to the very end. Love remains unchanged. The idea being, listen, we need the gifts we, we need to operate in the gifts. But what's more important is we need to operate in love. That love becomes our way of life, of how we do church together, of how we engage with our family, of how we engage at work, of how we engage in all these different places. That love would be the way of life for us. Listen, I can't say enough how crucial love is. Again, 1 Corinthians 12 says, every one of us in here, you, if you're a believer in Christ, you are an instrument of His. You have a unique design and you have a unique contribution. And when, it, when we come together in love, listen, that's when the music of heaven becomes beautiful. That's when, when it becomes powerful. That's when we can accomplish something mighty for the kingdom of God. That's why chapter 12 is, is crucial for us to be and to do all that God has created us to, to be and to do. We've got to understand it's done in love. That's why for Restoration Church, for us to, to be and do all that God has called us to be and do, means that every single one of us needs to play a part to live in and to live out God's love to the world around us. The question you have to ask yourself is how are you actively Living the, living the love that, to the world around you? How are you living out God's love to the world around you? In fact, John 13 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That the primary way the world is going to know that we are truly followers of Jesus is whether or not we have a love amongst one another. Love is the music of heaven that captures the attention of the world. Love is the point. As followers, this love flows from God through us to the people around us, and it endures forever. So would we be, let us be, a people who've been captivated by this love and radically live it out.